Welcome to the Thinking Faith Podcast, a collection of talks and Q&A that address the big questions we're all asking about God, life and purpose. Why bother with God if I'm happy? It's a question that I think we all, if we're honest with ourselves, have asked at some point. And it's certainly a question that a lot of people out there are asking, no matter what you believe, whether you're Christian or not, whether you're on a journey searching for God, searching for truth, struggling with questions. This is one of the big questions that is often heard, both from Christians and non-Christians. Why should we bother with God if we're happy? For many of us, we seem to be doing okay. We see people out there that don't have any kind of relationship with God or any kind of faith, and many of them seem to be getting through life all right. So why should we bother with this God? of whom we Christians speak of, if life seems to be going okay. There's a movie called The Truman Show that some of you I'm sure will have seen. It's from quite a while ago now. It starred Jim Carrey at the height of his career. And the movie opens with a man living a seemingly happy and ideal and idyllic life. He wakes up in a a clean, comfortable home, in a sunny, friendly town. He waves to his neighbors. He goes off to work. Everything seems great. Everything seems contented. Everything seems idyllic. He seems to be living a happy life. He doesn't need to ask any questions. He doesn't need to think more deeply about the deeper questions of life that we might be here today to ask or think about or hear about. Questions of faith, questions of meaning, questions of God, questions of purpose. None of these are on this man's mind. His name is Truman Burbank. But behind the facade of this seemingly happy life that he's living, we very soon find out that he is living, in many ways, a lie. Because what Truman Burbank doesn't know is that his entire town, his entire life is constructed. It's all based on deceit. In fact, everyone in his life is an actor. His entire town in which he lives is a film set. It's a studio. The first ever studio created to depict the life in 24-7 reality television, the life of an individual who doesn't even know that they're being filmed. And so Truman Burbank was actually adopted by a corporation, a media corporation, and his entire life is being live streamed to the rest of the world. One channel dedicated entirely to following and depicting the life of this man. Tens of thousands of cameras set up all over this place and every event that he experiences in his life is being controlled, is being monitored, is being tracked, And every relationship that he has is artificial. It's all with actors, but he has no idea. And of course, the whole movie is a progression of how Truman Burbank begins to notice things about this life, this happy, idyllic life that don't seem right. He begins to work out the reality of his life and he begins searching after truth. He wants to work out how to deal with the suffering in an authentic way that he sees in his life. And he wants something beyond this superficial happiness that he seems to be enjoying from the beginning of the movie where he thinks that his life is just fine. What can we learn from this movie, The Truman Show? Well, in many ways, this narrative ideally overlays this question. Why bother with God if I'm happy? If everything seems okay in my life, why should I bother with the deeper questions, with the bigger questions, with perhaps the more difficult questions of life? There are many things that could be said about this, but I wanna share with you three of those things. Three reasons why you and I and everyone out there should bother with God, no matter how happy we think we might be or could be without Him. And those reasons are this. 
because truth is indispensable, because suffering is unavoidable, and because happiness is not enough. Why bother with God if you're happy? Because truth is indispensable, because suffering is unavoidable, and because happiness is simply not enough. Firstly then, the indispensability of truth. What do I mean by that? Well, broadly speaking, and this is obviously overly simplified and overly summarized, broadly speaking, there are three ways of thinking about truth, three ways of making sense of truth. There is anti-truth thinking, there is post-truth thinking, and there is truth-seeking. And there are a number of subcategories under each of those, but to keep it simple, I want to talk about these three things. Anti-truth thinking is probably best summarized by a lot of what we know as the post-modern thinkers. And there's plenty that could be said, but put simply, this idea culminates in its most extreme form in the claim that there is no such thing as truth. Anti-truth thinkers would have us believe that there is no such thing as truth. The problem with this idea, of course, is that it fails logically. It self-destructs. It contradicts itself because the sentence, there is no such thing as truth, is a statement of truth. It's a truth claim. And so to anyone that asks that question, all we need to do to respond to them is to ask them, was that sentence true? The idea that there is no such thing as truth. If they say, yes, it was true, then they're contradicting themselves. They're admitting that absolute truth does actually exist. And if they say that it's not true, then again, they're contradicting themselves because they're agreeing that their statement is wrong. So whichever way we look at it, absolute truth does exist. It does exist because in trying to deny that truth exists, we simply disprove our own premise. We fundamentally contradict these very simple logical principles. So anti-truth thinking, postmodern thinking, these sorts of ideas that truth doesn't exist, they simply fail logically. Well, what's post-truth thinking then? Now, this is something that's been around for a very long time, but in recent years, it's come back again in a new way that's linked very much to our feelings. While anti-truth thinkers erroneously claim that truth does not exist, post-truth thinkers claim that truth doesn't matter. It may or may not exist, but what's more important are your feelings. Your feelings are what matter most. That Frank Sinatra song, My Way, that millennial mantra, you do you, your best self. Just live the life you wanna live based on how you feel. And while anti-truth thinking fails logically, post-truth thinking fails morally. It actually fails in a number of ways, but most importantly, it fails morally because it puts you at the center of your entire universe. This idea that your feelings matter most make you the most important person in the world. They put us in such a position that we create our own little moral universe. And anyone that offends us, that upsets us, that challenges us, is to be attacked, is to be vilified, at the very least, is to be pushed aside. We think of others as less than ourselves if we ultimately embrace post-truth thinking. We become wrapped up in our own feelings and perhaps most dangerously, we stop thinking about the needs of others. Ideas of sacrifice and selflessness and service, they all become secondary because we're all out there looking to please ourselves looking to live our lives in such a way that our feelings are the most important thing. So anti-truth thinking fails logically. Post-truth thinking fails morally. What's the third option? Well, I want to refer to this as truth-seeking. And this is not a Christian idea. This idea has been around for many thousands of years. In fact, thousands of years before Christianity was even Christianity. 
It's probably best summarized by the great Greek thinker Plato who said, if you want to find the truth, all you have to do is follow the evidence to where it leads. Finding the truth is about following the evidence to where it leads. And this is ultimately what Truman Burbank wanted. He began to realize that his life wasn't anchored in truth. He began to realize that he was living a lie. And suddenly this human instinct of wanting truth, which is common to all of us, came to the surface. That's what Plato was talking about all those many thousands of years ago. But when we then look at the Christian message, what is the Christian message in relation to this idea of truth, particularly in regards to Plato's idea of truth-seeking? Well, the Christian message is definitely not an anti-truth message. It's definitely not a post-truth message. It's a unique culmination of truth-seeking. And it's unique because of these three things. It brings together truth in these three incredible ways that hold up logically, that hold up morally, and they hold up in a number of other ways too. Firstly, the Christian message does claim to be true in a kind of propositional way. Plato said, follow the evidence to where it leads. And in the Christian Bible, we see again and again and again evidence offered. Logical evidence, psychological evidence, anecdotal evidence, eyewitness evidence. Outside the Bible, we can even test the credibility of the Bible itself. We see extra-biblical evidence. We see historical evidence, anthropological evidence, archaeological evidence. We look at the creation and the physical sciences. We see cosmological evidence. We see evidence from design, biological evidence. In so many different fields of human endeavor and understanding and research and academia, the Christian message offers evidence, evidence to support its truth claims. And as we all know, the truth can stand up to questioning. And once again, in the Bible, we see questioning invited, scrutiny invited. God says, come, let us reason together. He, call, he says to all Christians in 1 Peter 3, always be ready to give a reason, to give a defense, to give answers for the hope that you have. When Jesus is questioned, the resurrected Jesus himself is questioned by his own disciples that don't believe that he's actually risen from the dead. He doesn't just bat them away. He invites them to look at the evidence, to look at his scars. He invites Thomas to even touch his scars that he incurred on the cross. This Christian message is anchored in evidence. We aren't just called to blindly believe it. Some people believe it without questioning, but more and more of us, more and more of the time, have questions. And that's good, that's healthy, that's part of this Christian message because it has the answers. So if you've got the questions, don't hesitate to bring them. Bring them to your leaders, bring them to your church leaders. Look at the resources we might have for you online at Thinking Faith. Bring the questions because all questions have an answer and all good answers are anchored in truth. And if the Christian message is real, ultimate truth culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the second aspect of Christian truth. It's not just anchored in evidence, it's anchored in a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Christian message is the only message in human history that doesn't just point to truth. It actually involves God himself stepping into the world, pointing to himself and saying, I am the truth. So the Christian message is evidentially anchored, but it's also personally manifested. Truth for us Christians is ultimately embodied in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, that truth is made real for you and me in our lives relationally. So it's evidentially anchored, it's personally manifested, and it's relationally played out in our lives because we are called to step into relationship 
with this Jesus, the ultimate truth. And from the mouth of God himself, he tells us in the New Testament, I have come so you can have life and have it to the full. I stand at the door and knock. To anyone who answers and opens up the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's a relational picture. It's a picture of flourishing through relationship, not just coldly believing in doctrines or just believing in some philosophy or knowledge. This Christian gospel, this good news of Jesus, it isn't really at its core a religion at all. It's a relationship. And so while anti-truth thinking fails logically, post-truth thinking fails morally, the Christian message holds up. It holds up logically, it holds up morally. And it's anchored in relationship and in and through the person of Jesus. And that yearning for truth that you have, that I have, that Truman Burbank had in that movie, that all people all over the world have, is not a Christian yearning. It's a human yearning. We all yearn for truth. People might say truth doesn't exist. People might say it doesn't matter, that they don't care about it. But they do. They live like they do. No one wants to live a lie. No one wants to be cheated on. No one wants to be betrayed. No one wants to be lied to. No one wants to be tricked out of money. No one wants to be tricked in relationships. Everyone is searching for truth. And the Christian message offers that. So truth is indispensable. The first great reason why we should bother with God. Because this Christian message is true. And the truth is indispensable to our lives and to our hearts. Secondly, suffering is unavoidable. Now, one thing we know about suffering, it is everywhere. People of all faiths, no faiths, and every worldview throughout history have undergone suffering. In her famous novel Gilead, Marilyn Robinson, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, she wrote that there are two realities that plague all of creation. My insufficiency to the world and the world's insufficiency to me. What she's saying is it doesn't matter how hard we work or how hard we try. There's something always not quite right about the world around me, something imperfect. And at the same time, there's something, if I'm honest with myself, imperfect about me. Something deep down that's not quite right. And because of these two realities, the brokenness of ourselves and the brokenness of our world, there is going to be suffering. And because there is suffering everywhere and everyone experiences it in some way, shape or form, any worldview that deserves to be taken seriously and any worldview that is credible, and certainly any one that is true, would have to have a compelling response to suffering. It's not just the Christian that needs to answer this problem of suffering. Everyone needs to answer the problem of suffering, no matter what we believe. Because suffering happens to all of us. It happens to those around us. We're always experiencing it directly or indirectly. So what are the responses? Well, once again, there are broad categories of response without having time to go into every single response to suffering that's out there. There are four broad categories. The first suggests that God does exist. There is this thing called God out there, but he or she or it doesn't really care about your suffering. There's no moral connection between you and God. It's just his will. So you just have to shut up and take it. There's another category of worldview that suggests that suffering is your fault. Everyone that is suffering is suffering because of something they have done, either in this life or perhaps a previous life. We all bring about our own suffering directly. There's another category of worldview that suggests that suffering is an illusion. It's not real. It's because we socially construct and psychologically conjure up connections with things. And so when something happens to those things, we suffer. And so the solution for this category of worldview is to meditate ourselves 
into nothingness, to extinguish the self, to empty ourselves of desire. If we have no desire for our kids, then if we lose one or one gets sick, there'll be no suffering. If we have no desire for our jobs or for our health or for our feelings, then when these things get damaged or ripped away or we lose them, there'll be no more suffering. The fourth and final approach refers to the atheistic worldviews, which if they're being honest with us, they say suffering is meaningless. Because if there's no God, then everything is meaningless. We are just, as the new atheists have summarized, time plus matter plus chance. There is no meaning. We have to ascribe meaning to things. And so your suffering is objectively meaningless. So we just have to get, a, get around it or get through it or avoid it as best we can in our own strength. Now, I don't know about you, but these four approaches don't seem to me intellectually compelling. They don't seem to me practically compelling. And in my heart, they just don't seem satisfying. Thankfully, there is another response. The Christian response to suffering stands unique and stands apart from the other four categories of response that I've shared with you. Because this God, this God of the Bible, he didn't stand off in the distance and say he didn't care. He didn't pretend like it was an illusion. He didn't just blame us for all of our suffering. And he certainly didn't say it was meaningless. He said, no, suffering is the biggest struggle, the biggest struggle of humankind whom he loves and whom he loved. And so what does this God do? He steps down into the world as a person to experience not just that suffering that we all experience, but all of the brokenness, all of the suffering, all of the guilt and the shame and the consequences of human brokenness and suffering. He takes it all onto himself and he dies on a cross. And in doing so, he is now able to offer you and me the two things that all people are looking for in the midst of suffering. Comfort and strength in the suffering to get through it and hope of a future beyond the suffering where there's no more suffering. That's exactly what Jesus Christ offers. That's exactly what the cross of Jesus makes possible. I have come so you can have life and have it to the full, Jesus tells us. What he's saying is that I'm going to give you comfort and strength to get through the suffering now. In the book of Romans, we are more than conquerors through Christ. The, conqueror, the conquest is talking about suffering. To be more than conquerors, there has to be something to conquer. That's the evil and the suffering that Paul is referring to when he writes those lines. We are more than conquerors through Jesus. Jesus is saying, this world is broken and you are broken. Take my hand. We are going to get through this together. I have been there. I have felt it. This is a God who stepped into our suffering. Jesus Christ is the only God with scars. He kept his scars as a reminder to us that he's a God who suffered for us. And now if we take his hand, he's a God who's willing to walk through suffering with us and promises an eternal future where there's no more suffering at all. Why bother with God if we're happy? Because we're not always happy, because suffering is ubiquitous. Suffering is unavoidable. And Jesus, through the cross, offers us a pathway through it and the promise of a future beyond that suffering. Truth is indispensable. Suffering is unavoidable. Thirdly and finally, happiness is not enough. Why bother with God if we're happy? Because that assumes that we understand the fullness of what happiness could be. And we also assume that happiness is all that we're here for. C.S. Lewis famously said, and I'm paraphrasing him, he wrote that if happiness was all I was looking for, all I would need would be a good bottle of whiskey and a few friends by the fire. Happiness is just a feeling. That's what Lewis was getting at. Happiness is something that we can get from a hug or from itching a mosquito bite or from a nice cup of iced coffee. Happiness is a pathetically small objective. If that's all we're here for, sure, maybe we can get a glimpses of that feeling without God. 
But that feeling of happiness has a few weaknesses. First of all, it's temporary. It's based on environmental, natural realities. And it can never ultimately satisfy in the way that we want that ultimate satisfaction. So what does the Christian message have to say about this? Well, it offers something unique once again. It doesn't offer happiness, although that's part of the deal. It offers this qualitatively different thing called joy. Again and again, we see this word joy throughout the Bible. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, I've come so you can have life and have it to the full. In him, our joy is complete. So what is the difference between joy and happiness? Well, according to the world out there, there is no difference. In fact, if you Google it, the word happiness is defined as just a component of joy. And if you Google joy, it's just defined as a whole lot of happiness stacked up. That's the world's definition. They don't understand the difference between happiness and joy because when we throw God out of the picture, there is no difference. And we are just left to find our happiness as best we can. And if we find enough of it, maybe we will say that's joy. But God says, no, joy is something not quantitatively different to happiness. It's qualitatively different. Happiness is based on temporary, environmental, natural realities. But joy is based on eternal, unchanging, supernatural realities. And it comes from being in right relationship with God. That's where joy comes. God is the only source of joy. St. Augustine, the great Christian thinker and theologian, he famously wrote that our hearts are restless. God made us for himself, and that's why our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. That's the joy. That's the peace. We can look for this joy in the natural, in our own strength, but ultimately we will never find it. The best we can do is happiness, and that's ultimately not enough. That's just not good enough. We, our hearts long for something more. They long for that satisfaction and the deepest kind of happiness that's anchored supernaturally that never ends and never stops. So what does walking with God look like? Well, happiness for the Christian will go up and down just like it does for everyone else. But if we are walking in right relationship with Jesus and we have the eternal assurance of comfort and strength in suffering, of an eternal future beyond suffering, of walking with the creator of the universe who embodies perfect truth in a personal and relational and evidence-based way, then our joy holds strong, regardless of what happens in the world. We almost become invincible, in a sense, to what happens in the world, even to death. It's not that we don't suffer. It's not that we don't struggle. It's not that we don't feel the things that other people feel. But we have an assurance. We have an eternal joy that is always with us, that keeps our heart full. In fact, it helps us to get through the difficulties. That's ultimately what happened to Truman Burbank. At the end of that movie, and I'm sorry for spoiling it, but it's an old movie. If you haven't seen it by now, you probably weren't going to, but I recommend that you do. In the end, he escapes this life. And as an audience, we are all cheering for that. We want him to step into a life of truth where he's not just superficially happy, where his suffering can be made sense of in a more authentic way, and when he can actually live in truth, when his life isn't just actors pretending. And how does that actually happen? It actually comes down to a, a woman who came in as an actress, as an actor, and began dropping clues for him because she wanted to get him out. It was a rescue based in relationship. And it's a pathetically inadequate metaphor and illustration, I know, but that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and me. He stepped into our world where the best we could do was superficial happiness based on deceptions and lies and how things just smelt and looked and feel. And he took us out in supernatural rescue to offer us ultimate truth, an ultimate conquest of suffering, 
and ultimate joy. The question for you and I now, and everyone out there, is what are we going to do with that offer of truth, that offer of conquest through suffering, and that offer of eternal and ultimate joy? Why bother with God if I'm happy? Because truth is indispensable, suffering is unavoidable, and happiness is simply not enough. And all three of these things find their powerful and compelling diagnosis, response, solution, and culmination, and ultimate joy in the person of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening. God bless you guys.